Hello? Hey, Rich, it's Larson. You got a minute? Sure, Larson. What's up? Hello and welcome to the Got A Minute podcast with uh, myself, with me. I hate saying myself, that's improper. With me, Larson Hicks, and my uh, partner in crime here, Pastor Rich Lusk. Good to have you again, sir. Yeah, great to be with you, Larson. So um, so we, our last episode, we talked about conspiracy theories. Uh, we talked a little bit about anti-Semitism. And, uh, and then we sort of touched on uh, George Gilder, um, a book that a lot of uh, folks are talking about right now uh, in the CRC because uh, Canon Press is, is releasing, re-releasing um, a 70s book that he wrote called uh, Men in Marriage. Um, I think it was originally called Sexual Suicide. Anyway, so we kind of want to tie up some loose ends maybe on uh, on last week's episode and then jump into Gilder's. That sound good? That sounds great. Let's do it. Awesome. Well, what do you got? Let's let's uh, any other thoughts or or well, things to to mention? Yeah, yeah. So I was thinking about our, our last episode where we talked about anti-Semitism some, yeah. and it, it's it's uh, you know it's obviously I, I think it's very frustrating actually to 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 hear yeah. uh, that anti-Semitism is manifesting itself in various ways among conservatives today. One thing I find interesting is that the the way that things have been for much of the last generation, it's like you have dispensationalism in conservative circles with its what is sometimes called Zionism, basically with its with its view of the Jewish people and yeah. um, and and the nation state of Israel. And basically dispensationalism is a theological school among some conservative Christians that says that God has a special plan for Israel that is distinct from uh, his plan for the church, which is a predominantly Gentile institution. And so then the idea is they kind of run on parallel tracks. And dispensational Zionism has definitely infected Amer- American politics. Anytime you hear about, you know, basically we need to give unconditional support to Israel no matter what, that that's that kind of Zionism showing up. And dispensationalism right. is really behind a lot of that. Of course, it gets corrupted in some ways as it gets popularized and politicized in various directions. But uh, that, that's been a big problem on the right. And covenant theologians, of which I'm, I'm very much in that stream of covenant theology, have been very critical of dispensationalism because uh, it, it does not do justice to the single story of Scripture. The church is the new Israel, and the church includes both Jews and Gentiles. And we are united to Jesus, who is the true and ultimate Israelite. So in that sense, right. everything that God promised to the Jews as a people uh, is given to uh, to Christians who are united to Jesus and people who might be um, physical descendants of Abraham who do not trust in Jesus uh, and are not therefore not united to him uh, don't receive those blessings. And Paul gets at this in Romans chapter 11 when he talks about the wild branches, the Gentiles being grafted into the tree of the covenant and the natural branches being broken out because of their unbelief. And, and that's so crucial. Occasionally, because Covenant theologians will talk about the church as the new Israel. And in that sense, some people will say, oh, you're saying the church supplants Israel and supplants the Jewish people and that kind of thing. Covenant theologians would be accused of anti-Semitism. It's a ridiculous charge. There's, there's mm-hmm. nothing anti-Jewish in, in the claim. Basically, what we're saying is that what really matters in the new covenant is not in terms of your relationship with God. Obviously, there's other, you know, other uh, factors that 
um, that, that, that matter for other, you know, other aspects of what we do. But in terms of our relationship with God, there are only two categories of people. There are Christians and there are non-Christians, and that's what mm-hmm. matters most. And, and so uh, to, to say that Jews have their own track uh, or their own relationship with God or something like that's problematic. But we're not, that doesn't make us anti-Semite any more than right. uh, simply saying that everybody, whatever your, whatever your ethnicity is, you need to repent and believe the gospel. Uh, yeah. so, so it's no different. Jews are not being singled out for anything. Same kind of thing happens with what is known as preterism. Preterism is uh, a view that there is a lot of New Testament prophecy that was fulfilled in 70 AD in the destruction of the temple. So, for example, the Olivet Discourse, where right. Jesus is with his disciples in Jerusalem and they're amazed at the temple structure and the buildings there and all that. And Jesus says, not one stone will be left upon another. And then they say, well, tell us what will be the sign of this? What will be the sign of your coming? They're interested. If Jesus is saying the temple is going to be destroyed, they want to know what's going to lead up to that because obviously the last time the temple was destroyed, it meant you know exile for Israel and all that. So yep. Jesus then goes on to answer that question with um, with all kinds of things, basically predicting all kinds of things that will lead up to the destruction of the temple and what it will be like in Matthew chapter 24. And he says, this generation will not pass away until all of these things have happened. And of course, that is what came to pass. Jesus uttered that uh, word of doom against the temple, probably about 30 AD or so. The temple was destroyed in 70 AD. That's 40 years. That's a generation. It happened. Uh, and, and so uh, particularly, and, and of course, this follows on the heels of the curse he pronounces on the Pharisees and all that at the end of, of Matthew chapter 23. Jesus could not be anti-Semitic, of course, because he was himself a Jew. Uh, so when he pronounces a curse on the Pharisees, or you could even say on the Jewish people of his day, that's not a curse based on ethnicity. That is a curse based on their unbelief and their rejection of him as the Messiah that God sent. So we have to distinguish those issues. So when Jesus says that this judgment is going to fall, that is the end of the old covenant. And that is the end of Israel as a people having a special standing as God's covenant people. And that is the end of any kind of special curse that might fall upon the Jews. From time to time in medieval Christendom, and you actually see this with Luther to some degree, and and, and this may be what's happening now, there is this view that the Jews must be under some special curse because they're the right. ones who crucified Jesus. They said, may his blood be on us and on our children. Right. Well, okay, fine, but that curse has expired. That curse has been exhausted as of 70 AD. That curse was fulfilled in the destruction of the temple and it is no more. Now Jews are under no special curse and they have no special relationship with God. Again, what matters is whether you are a Christian or not a Christian. So the way I see it, you've kind of got, you kind of have this spectrum. On the one end, you've got Zionistic dispensationalism that wants to say no matter what the nation state of Israel does, it has this special place in God's prof, prof, in, right. in God's program and in prophecy. And it doesn't matter if modern day Israel won't let Christians evangelize and, and uh, if it's a secular state that is radically pro-abortion and pro-sodomite and all of that, we've still got to stand behind it. That's absurd to me. Yeah. Uh, it's no different for Israel to commit those sins than any other nation state to, to right. commit those sins. Um, and then on the other extreme, you've got this anti-Semitism. And I, I think what's probably happening with some of the, and we, and we talked about this last week, but I just want to reiterate it. What's probably happening with some of the anti-Semitism that you're seeing on the right is uh, a couple things. One, as we talked about last time, people are looking for a scapegoat 
Yeah. And the Jews happen to be available because you have yeah. so many Jews in prominent positions of power in politics and especially in the culture in places like Hollywood. It's easy to identify this as a group and they're going to blame yeah. them for what's gone wrong. Um, that's really absurd. You could just as easily make a case that we ought to blame the Roman Catholic Church because Joe Biden and Nancy Pelosi and so right. forth, members of the Roman Catholic Church. Or white Church. people, for that matter. Or white people, yeah. I, mean, <laughs> you know, I remember when Stephen Wolf said that, that white people are, you know, white evangelicals are the only hope of America, you know, saving America from progressivism. And I said, you know, the statement would actually be more, I mean, I disagree with the statement, it's yeah. false. But the statement would be more accurate if he said something like, white evangelicals are the only ones who can save America from white progressives. You've got to bring race into it on both sides. Right. We're not, whites are not just predominant among evangelicalism, also among progressivism. Uh, you know, whites are very dominant. So, it, to, and that's why I would just say this: you're bringing ethnicity into a, into a discussion where it really has no place. Yeah, that's right. The, the color of your skin has nothing to do with those particular positions. And to yeah. say that there's something special about white people that they could be the hope of our culture or our country is is really just absurd, and, and it's a yeah. misplaced hope. But what, I, what I, I think one thing to understand, you know, in, in talking about the Jews as being made into a scapegoat and that kind of thing, of course, that's very Hitler-esque, which is very scary. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, another thing that goes along with that, I, this is what I liken it to. If you think about in the Jim Crow South, uh, a lot of the racism, a lot of the most intense racism came from lower white classes, poor white people, yeah. um, sometimes known as white trash. I, mean, I don't think that's fair to call sure. them that. But that. That's what they became known as. They were the lower class whites. And, and the reason that they were um, so susceptible to anti-black racism was not just the, you know, the racial history and any animosity that might be there because of slavery. These are people whose ancestors probably did not own slaves. I mean, only about 5% of Southerners even owned slaves. So these were not right. people with a history of, right. of slavery in their background for the most part. But what they, um, what they saw happening is blacks who, quite honestly, blacks were, were despite being unjustly discriminated against with Jim Crow laws were still doing quite well in all kinds of ways and actually were increasing in household wealth at a faster rate mm. than whites were mm. up until the passage of the civil rights uh, legislation in the 60s, which is really interesting. And this actually will get us into some things that Gilder talks about eventually. But yeah. uh, blacks were uh, beginning to climb the social ladder at a faster pace than poor whites. And so a lot of it was driven by animosity, yep. envy, jealousy, resentment. Basically, we don't want to be passed up on the social ladder right. by blacks. And that's what drove it. And I think there's something similar that's going on anytime anti-Semitism rears its ugly head is yep. a lot of times I think you have people who look at their own people group and they're frustrated that their own people group seems to be underachieving. And then they yep. look at the Jews who seem to be very successful and prosperous and leaders in a number of different fields, whether it's music or banking or entertainment, and they get jealous, they get yeah. envious. And so they, uh, it's, again, it's, it's driven by envy, it's driven by resentment. Uh, well, it's, it's really an irrational prejudice. It is. And I think the message, I think one of the messages that we have to, we have to uh, reiterate is that you're falling into a trap. I mean, the, the, the left has been trying to bait us into a racial divide, you know, scenario uh, for for decades. You know, I mean, it, this the play has been, I mean, and certainly in the last five years, uh, you know, it's been 
let's play up racial divides. Let's let's play up, you know, racism. And and, you know, you go back to when I was growing up in the 80s and 90s. It's like racism, you know, for, for all intents and purposes, where I grew up on the border of, of Mexico uh, in Texas, racism wasn't a thing. You know, I mean, racism just wasn't a thing. It was it, it was we were watching television shows that had that had black people in them and white people. And, and I was, I was a minority in the city I grew up in. I didn't feel any animosity from anybody. I didn't have any animosity towards anybody, you know, for, for all intents and purposes, I think racism was sort of out of the American consciousness it was sort of dealt with. And I know that that's an oversimplification. I'm sure there are pockets all over the country of, of real, uh, racism, but, but I, I just think generally on the whole, um, we we were sort of moving past it, and and the left has been trying desperately to bring it back into, you know, to to, to and, and I think the argument is uh, the play that they're running is, you know, they they are um, trying they they see that population is growing, you know, in in with immigrants and and um, and minorities, and so they're trying to sort of make themselves the heroes and champions of of uh, equality, uh, racial equality. And so they got to play up this boogeyman. They got to create a boogeyman. And the hilarious thing is that um, is that conservative white folks are taking the bait and go and and yeah. and falling into it. They're becoming the enemy that that uh, the left has been, um, you know, has has been uh, inventing. You know, they've they've invented the straw man, but they're sort of inhabiting that straw man and. And bringing it to life, and it's like, hold on, guys! Like you're 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 just falling right into it. And I understand the frustration. I think the frustration is we've been living with this high-profile animosity towards white, uh, married, conservative Christians. You know, it's just in our face constantly. Uh, Black Lives Matter and everything else. And there's this there's this desire to to react and to fight back and push back. But I think the the mistake is let's fight fire with fire. You know, let's yeah. they're, they're yeah. being racist or they're being anti-racist, whatever you want to call it. And so we're going to just go ahead and respond with with actual racism. You know, and it's like, yeah. you know, it's 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 so stupid. I mean, ultimately, it is falling into a trap. Yeah, you know, you're exactly right. It, it is a trap. I do think the left has been trying to bait the right into um, into just these kinds of missteps. I think, you know, some of this, I even wonder if it's kind of behind some of the Trump indictments, which, you know, yeah. you, you can, whatever yeah. your opinion is on that, the fact that all of this is being taken to this level, a lot of it is ridiculous, um, especially when you see the double standard at work and all that you can get away with if you happen to have, you know, uh, progressive politics. But uh, I, I think they have been trying to bait people on the right into yeah. making some kind of huge misstep that would then justify some kind of crackdown. I think, I think you know, January 6th was, was maybe part of that, too. Uh, I think that kind of thing is really going on. But, but, it is, but I, I do think that, um, well, you talked about your own experience growing up. I'll talk about mine for just a minute. Yeah. I, you know, I've lived a lot of different places, north, south, east, west. Uh, and, and you know, kind of been all over this country, but I did grow up in Chicago, and uh, and I would say it was by far the most racist place that I've lived. Um, <laughs> and I saw anti-Semitism firsthand. I saw anti-Asian, you know, uh, sentiment. I saw uh, I saw some some racism against blacks. I mean, it was very much far more than I've ever seen in the South. You know, which yeah. is interesting because yeah. it's probably contrary to a lot of stereotypes people have. Yeah. Um, I mean, there was I, we had a, one of my football coaches was Jewish, and he actually there were. 
Um, you know, there was there was anti-Semitism expressed against him in various ways, which was really sad to see, and even then, really distressing. Um, and I saw Asians also kind of get marginalized and, and um, you know, basically um, socially canceled or blackballed. You know, right? Uh, so, so yeah, I mean, so the, the, and when these things happen, they're very ugly. They're very very ugly, and. I would say this, if the left is trying to play a game of identity politics, the right should not respond with its own version of identity politics. Unfortunately, this is what this is something that Stephen Wolf does in his book, Christian Nationalism, and I think he's kind of done it online. And he even says this. He says, you know, my problem is not, he basically says, I embrace critical theory. Um, you know, he wants to do an identity, he wants to do a white lives matter kind of thing. He wants to do an identity politics for whites. And, and I just think that's incredibly unhelpful. For one thing, I just don't identify with all white people in that right. way. It, to me, no. that, that's, not, that's not a helpful category. There are white people who are Christians and, and, and atheists. There are white people who I share a whole lot in common with and white people I don't. There are white people who speak English and there's lots of white people in, around the world who don't. You know, so it just, it, it just doesn't really make any sense uh, to, to, to parcel things up that way. I can't see any, any good or usefulness coming out of that. Yeah. Um, and that, and and I think you know when there are some people who are going to say this, oh, you're anti-American or whatever. No, that's not true. Or you're full, you're full of self-hatred. No, that's not true either. It's just that category doesn't really do anything for me. It doesn't accomplish anything yeah. for me. So I think we have to reject identity politics wherever it comes from. And this is the thing: um, if you play the game of identity politics, it always is going to breed all kinds of division. It's going to be counterproductive to what should be most important to us, which is the mission of the church, the evangelizing and discipling of the nations. It's going to make all of that much, much more possible. And this is an area where we have to, we cannot be afraid of criticizing people who are close to us on the political spectrum. I mean, you know, obviously we, you know, if, if you're on the right, you know, kind of a conservative traditionalist, a, a, a a traditionalist Christian, then obviously, you know, you, you know how to criticize people on the left, the progressive liberal end of the political and cultural spectrum. But sometimes we have to criticize our own people who are otherwise quite close to us on the political spectrum. We have to, uh, we sort of have to police our own and, and be willing to be critical of people who otherwise share a great deal in common with us. And I've, I've also seen people who say, well, you know, because of the, because of what's at stake, uh, in our current culture wars and that kind of thing. We just shouldn't, you know, we should not have any enemies who are on the right end of the political spectrum. And I, I just, I'm not talking about making enemies, but I am talking about just being honest and, tr and truthful and saying what needs to be said and dealing with our own. If yeah. we can't deal with our own sin, we certainly can't deal with somebody else's. If we can't get the speck out of our own eye, we can't get the, you know, I mean, it's just, you have to start with yourself. You have to judge yourself first. You have to judge your own group first. Yeah. And, and that's the only way that you can, uh, I think, be trusted to make judgments about others is if you're willing to be self-critical. Um, and I don't just mean yourself, but uh, of, of whatever in-group you're a part of. Yeah. Uh, so I think that's really, really crucial. And and insofar as anti-Semitism might be re-emerging on the right, I think it's absolutely critical for us to criticize it and shut it down. And uh, there's a lot of great things out there to read on this. There's a lot of great things to listen to. Uh, and I hope people who might be tempted by this will um, will go read and listen to those things and, yeah. and have minds changed. Well, I... I uh... I don't want to beat this topic to death because I want to move on to our next thing. But but I'll just I'll just say yes and amen to everything you said. I th I think um, I brought up Gerard last week. I think Gerard is a good place to look for understanding how these phenomena happen. This is not the first time. This will not be the last time. 
in history where um, where people uh, rise up uh, in a in a mimetic this mimetic contagion is what is what Gerard would call it that spreads throughout a community uh, that, that wants to identify a scapegoat of some sort and it used to work it used to work with just a single person Christ came and kind of exposed the mechanism and no longer are we willing to go well it's that guy's fault let's just kill that guy we now have to identify a bigger group of people and whether it's Jews or it's or it's black people or it's or it's uh, you know the communists or the liberals or the or whoever you know it's it it, it it takes that 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 contagion is still at work in the world it's satanic um and it, but but it it the the dosage has to be increased now in order for it to have the effect that it used to have um and uh, and so now it's, it's usually aimed at big groups of people um so that's something to just recognize is going on in the world I think there's a really great segue here, uh, Rich, into Gilder because because one of the key points of Gilder is that we are um, every society in the world uh, for all of time has had to deal with barbarians. You know, it's had to deal with, and barbarians are always young men. You know, it's always groups of young men, and and um, and so his whole premise is how do societies do that what has worked what hasn't worked and it all comes down to men and marriage um, but but I actually think what we're talking about here is a symptom of this problem uh, we are living in a you know, Gerard, uh, uh, Gilder would say you know a sexually liberated society who is who is divorced itself from the power of marriage um, as this kind of civilizing force and what you're getting is like for instance in a society where a sexually liberated society where women are now competing in the marketplace uh, with men um, you're getting men whether they're married or not I think I think what we're seeing is men who are trying to perform you know they're trying to perform um, and express their masculinity and and I and I suspect that this whole anti-semitism thing or just internet warrior phenomena in general is, you know, in a world where you feel as a man like I have no control over my wife, you know, or over my workplace, you know, I'm I'm in direct competition with women who who, uh, and and I, I need a way to sort of express my masculinity. You know, I think sometimes this internet you know warrior thing comes out where it's like, well, I'm just gonna go online. And start beating my chest, you know, and saying these these outlandish things that take a lot of courage, you know, supposed courage to say, as a as an expression of my of my masculinity. Uh, so anyway, that's I'm, that's that's my attempt at trying to segue from from anti-Semitism into Gilder. Um, yeah, yeah, that's good. Yeah, um, I, I, let me talk a little bit. I might have mentioned this some on our last yeah. episode. I can't remember because we did talk about this at the, at the end of it. But um, let me talk about my own experience with this book because yeah. um, this, this book, you know, obviously, you know, the, the, the role that a book plays in your life depends a lot of times not just on what the book says, but when in your life you read it, okay. you know, in relation to other things you've already learned or read or whatnot. So, okay. you know, somebody picking up and reading this book today might think, Oh, I've already heard all the stuff in this book that's good. And then there's also some kind of problematic stuff in this book that could have been said a whole lot better uh, or just differently altogether. And so why, why the focus on this book? Um, it, it was interesting because I, I did hear Doug Wilson talk about why Cannon is republishing this book. And it, I, I got the sense almost that there's a little bit of nostalgia involved in this because sure. – 
Um, and maybe that's just because they're using that 1980s uh, type font, you know, and look and their marketing materials for the book. But actually, for me, it's a little bit nostalgic as well, because it was one of the first books that I read, one of the first series books that I read on uh, masculinity, femininity, marriage, the sexual revolution. I was in college and this was so this was early 1990s. This was maybe like 1992 or so right around there and uh, had, had a mentor who led us through a lot of books. Uh, an older Christian man who kind of took, you know, a handful of us Christian guys from church under his wing. And we read books like Ideas Have Consequences by Richard Weaver, you know, yeah. which, which is, I mean, that's a, that's a fabulous book for discussion, even though it's kind of all over the place and says many things that are good and many things that are, uh, you know, maybe, uh, maybe problematic. It's still a great book for discussion. And it's a book that just, it opens your eyes to so many things. Yeah. He had us reading some of the national review types, you know, some William Buckley and Joseph Sobran and, that kind of thing. We talked about Pat Buchanan because he was, you know, he was a big deal back then. And he's probably yep. somebody that a lot of folks owe an apology to since a lot of things that he predicted and talked about have come to pass. I think in some ways, you know, you could have avoided the whole Trump mess if Buchanan's not, not necessarily the man, but even just his, you know, his, some of his concerns about where things were headed uh, were heated at the time by conservatives. The conservative movement chose to go into it in a different direction the Republican Party went in a different direction, and I think that was problematic. But So I read Gilder in the early 1990s. So obviously, even by then, this book was a, maybe, you could say, a little bit dated, uh, because actually you can trace the roots of this book back to work that Gilder was doing in the 70s, like in the early 70s, when he first started writing uh, magazine articles that dealt with some of these topics. So this was something that he had been dealing with for a while, and, and you know, sort of just analyzing what's happening with the sexual revolution and with the women's liberation movement, what's happening to men in the midst of all of this, what about family breakdown and the welfare state, all those kinds of things. And a lot of the things he says in this book now are pretty commonplace in conservative circles. But at the time, I mean, they were still uh, at the time, they were not as well known or understood. So his yep. book was pivotal in that kind of way. But for me personally, it was one of the first serious books that I read about these kinds of issues, about yep. manhood, about uh, feminism, about uh, what's happening to the family in our culture, particularly in relation to the welfare state and changing divorce laws and a changing understanding about um, masculinity and femininity and the roles of men and women in marriage and society and so forth. So for me, it was it was really, really pivotal. Now, I will say this. A lot of people have been critical of certain aspects of the book, and we'll get to that. I will tell you, the mentor that I read this book with all those many years ago pointed out a lot of those problems, how in some ways Gilder does pedestalize women and um, in some ways makes women responsible for we could, I think his language is civilizing men. Okay, I think that's actually very problematic on a number of fronts. I think he's also short-sighted, and again, this is something we'll get to uh, in a bit, um, in that just as he talks about how men need to undergo a transformation and, and grow to maturity, he sort of acts as if women are finished products from the start and don't need something similar. Sure. Uh, as if women don't have to work on controlling their nature and reining in their worst impulses the way men do. I think we can say now in 2023, that's just completely false. Uh, women have to learn to control their emotional nature and, and, and other, um, you know, their, their characteristic male sins are also characteristic female sins. Gilder saw the characteristic male sins and he presented a way to deal with those. He took for granted that, I mean, it's, it's really the narrative that became very common in 19th century America that men are demonic and women are angelic. You know, that women are 
uh, spiritually superior to men, just intrinsically. And I think Gilder kind of starts with that, and I think that that is a problem. So that is something that's kind of woven through the book that if you read it, you'll see come out from time to time that does have to be dealt with. But the basic thesis of the book, which, you know, his preface to the revised edition, so um, this edition that I have, uh, which came out in, um, and this is not the one that I read back then, I, 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 re, I reread it, and I because I wanted to start over and just be able to take new notes in it, basically. But this one was printed in uh, 1993. Um, so uh, this is what he says in the opening statement. He says, Men in Marriage is a revised edition of Sexual Suicide, my book on the drive to deny and repress the differences between the sexes. It is also about the redemptive joys and crucial, crucial functions of marriage and family, the roots of human civilization. What he's dealing with in this book is our modern push through feminism and, and uh, other social movements towards androgyny. Mm-hmm. Okay? It's, 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 people think of it a lot of times, you know, there's, there's been a war on women and there's been a war on men. Well, that, that is true. There, there, are, there are various currents uh, that have um, attacked femininity and various currents in our society, in our culture that have attacked masculinity. But the real war is on sexual difference itself. And so the real tendency of feminism, of the women's liberation movement, the real tendency of the sexual revolution, the real tendency in the modern world has been to feminize men and masculinize women. And it's really interesting because you can go back to Abraham Kuyper, who, uh, if you you know, Kuyper is a major figure in in Reformed history. He was the um, prime minister of the Netherlands. Uh, in the late 1800s, and um, and also a, a, a brilliant theologian in his own right, and he has a line. He came over to, to to the U.S. and gave some lectures at Princeton called the Stone Lectures. And in those lectures, he said that modernity will not be content until it has made man into woman and woman into man. I need to go find that quote so I can give you the exact the exact quotation. I didn't look it up ahead of time. But it, it's it's already, you know, that far back you could see this attack on sexual difference, sexual distinction. Mm-hmm. Kuiper was already recognizing this. You could, and I would say about the same time, Robert Louis Dabney was making the same argument um, as as a theologian, you know, Presbyterian mm-hmm. theologian in the U.S. that you've got this tendency to masculinize women and feminize men, and 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 Dabney even pointed out that the masculinized woman is not going to be attractive to men, and the feminized man is not going to be attractive to women, and it's actually going to kill the polarity between the sexes that drives attraction. Dabney was talking about this. I mean, kind of red pill type stuff, we might say today. He was talking about this kind of stuff, you know, in the late 1800s. So this has been around. In fact, you can you can trace this. I think another really interesting source to look at here is uh, Ernest Hemingway. Um, a lot of his writings deal with this, particularly his book, The Sun Also Rises. Uh, which is really about gender confusion, the onset of gender confusion after World War One, and kind of the you know what he calls the lost generation. And, and the protagonist in the book, this man named Jake, has a war wound that will prevent him from consummating a relationship with a woman. And and it's really clear in the story for Hemingway that's kind of a picture of what modern Western man has become. Um, he's castrated. He's mm. Masculated. You have other characters in the book who we would say today they're alphas or betas, sort of alpha males and beta males. 
And uh, but what's interesting is the main female character. Her name is Brett, which is kind of a masculinized name. She's got a short haircut like men. She she's sexually liberated. She kind of gets passed around from man to man. But what's interesting, and, and Jake really wants to pursue her and have a relationship with her, and she's just not interested. She'll, she keeps Jake in the friend zone. Uh, but it's interesting. There's one point in the book, and granted, it's a Hemingway book, so uh, you know it's a Hemingway story, so people are drunk on pretty much every page. But especially given our transgender debates today, there is a place where the male-female pronouns are swapped. I mean, the first time I read it, I thought, is there a typo, like a typo, like an editorial mistake in my book? And I looked at it and I was like, no, that's, that's how he wrote it. And, and I think he swapped the pronouns, you know, putting a he where there should be a she and, and vice versa, because he was making that point that gender confusion is what marks the modern era. You know, this is in the 19, what, maybe 19, late 1920s, I think, when he wrote uh, The Sun Also Rises. So, uh, so the, the, and, and the way, and, and basically what happens in the book, I don't want to give the whole thing away for somebody who might want to go read it, but there is one man that Brett finds herself irresistibly drawn to, and he is this young bullfighter, Spanish bullfighter, who is really presented as the epitome of old world conventional masculinity. And he tells Brett, you know, for example, he tells Brett, I want you to grow out your hair. He wants her to become more conventionally feminine. And so you see this yearning for a return to the archetypes of masculinity and femininity, but the, you know, the culture now stands in the way. The culture has emasculated men, and the culture has masculinized women. And so you see that kind of confusion. Okay, so this has been going on for a long, long time. Yeah. Gilder picks up on this and says, this is the biggest problem in our society. This is at the root of everything else. And if not dealt with, it will destroy our civilization. And here we are, you know, Decades later, and yeah. we've got the lowest birth rate we've had, you know, in history, the lowest marriage rate. And you can see, and, and there's, there's kind of this hopelessness and this malaise that has set in. And you see, you know, the kind of things Gilder was warning us about, they're coming to pass more and more Absolutely. as the leaven of these terrible ideas about sex and gender continue to get woven into our culture. Yeah, he's, he's um, you know every now and then you have to stop and go, when was this written? You know, because as you're reading it, you're going, wow, this guy, this guy was calling, was calling it, you know, 50 years ago. And we're living in exactly the world that he's describing. We are headed for, um, at that time. And, and I think most, I think most of us weren't seeing it because uh, it hadn't trickled down into, to most of society. But I, I think the, I want to I want to real quick if we can because we're we're sort of um, we and we may end up spending more time on this than than um, than just one episode but I think I think it's important to understand what what Gilder's project is what he's doing what he's not doing and I think for starters just recognizing this is not a guy a biblical scholar who's trying to you know uh, exegete or do some systematic theology of of manhood and womanhood from Scripture this is a this is a guy who's looking at at a lot of, uh, it's really anthropology, you know, it's, it's really looking at social science, you know, studies. Sociology, yeah. Yeah, and, it, and, it's, and it's fascinating. And I think if you look at it as, this is data about the way the world, this is, this is more descriptive of the way the world works than it is prescriptive, trying to understand what scripture has to say. Um, a Christian can take this and really, uh, you know, learn a lot uh, and, and kind of feed a lot into your, 
your perspective and and it's just it's a perspective it's a kind of perspective we're not listen we're not we're not attuned to hearing or listening to I, and i and i think you know, this comes back to a comment i might have made when we spoke last week about reading graciously you know reading patiently but this is a real challenge a real problem uh in the world i might have i think i recorded a podcast about this just on my own show recently about you know the the importance of of slowing down when you're reading something and asking is my is the way that i'm understanding this the way that the author would articulate this if if, if they were if they were standing here and i repeated is this what he's saying uh would, would he agree with me or not and i think i think what's happened uh and again in this world of hot takes you know this this age that we live in somebody reads the word sexual superiority of women you know in our circles and just red flags start flashing everywhere and instead of doing the diligence to go read it and understand what was gilder 50 years ago what did he mean by that um and actually i went from i think when you and i spoke a week or two ago i was on the side of he probably was using some antiquated language and we just need to interpret i'm now reading and going i think that's the best language for it once you understand his argument you realize oh he's saying something he's not saying what you think he's saying um but it's actually the best way to describe what he's talking about. Um, and so maybe really quick, I've got a few quotes I can probably read here from the book, but but do you want to take a crack at explaining that? Uh, or, or would you rather me, I, I can read a few quotes to kind of help frame it. Um, well, I, I have wondered whether or not it is the best language to use to express what he's getting at. But he yeah. is getting at something. Whatever you say about the language, he is getting at something really, really important. Yeah. Um, on this on this podcast, at some point, I think we talked about the book, Eggs Are Expensive, Sperm is Cheap. Yes. Okay, It's a short little book um, by, um, what's his name? Greg. Do you remember his last name? Cribles, I think, or something? Cribles, something yeah. like that. Yeah. Yes. I would say that that, that that book, Eggs Are Expensive, Sperm is Cheap, is a really good short and actually very practical introduction to a lot of the themes that Gilder's talking about yeah. here. And and you mentioned this. I mean, I don't know that Gilder was a Christian. I don't know that he is a Christian. I know he's had a lot of connection with the Christian yeah, I think he faith. Is now. I don't know yeah. that he's. I just I don't know about his personal faith. But uh, and, and so you're right to point out the book is really doing sociology and anthropology. You know, there's not going to be any biblical exegesis here or anything like that. Same thing, really, with Krebel's book. I think Krebel's is a Christian, and the eggs are expensive, sperm is cheap book. But he's really doing sociology, and he's saying these are things, these are these are basic fundamental realities that are being suppressed that you need to understand as a man if you really want to succeed in the world. If you want to succeed in a relationship with a woman and, and all that. These are these are fundamental realities that you're probably not being told, not being taught, but that you need to know. And in some ways, you could say. Gilder's doing something similar. He's helping us better understand ourselves. So whatever language you want to put on it, the reality is sex is, in a very real sense, a higher stakes thing for the woman than it is for the man because she is the weaker vessel. She is the one who's going to get pregnant and bear that child and then have to nurse that child. There's a vulnerability involved for her that is not there for the man. Now, for Gilder will say that the fundamental problem any society has to solve is what to do with its unattached men, with its single men. Mm-hmm. I would say the problem here is not that the men are single. There, there, there are actually quite a few single men who do just fine. I think of, you know, say, for example, John Stott, who was single. 
Um, and sure. I think had he, had, was gifted in that way. Occasionally, God does gift somebody with celibacy. They can live an, an undistracted single life. For most men, that's not the reality. So what you have is a lot of men who are single, but they're not gifted with celibacy. And so they have a tendency to become sexual predators. That's what happens. So they're the barbarians in the book. And the question then is, what do you do with these men? The problem is not that they're single per se. The problem is that they do not have a mission. If they have a mission, they wouldn't be so prone to drift. They wouldn't be so prone to barbarism. If they had a mission, they would make themselves marriageable, and then they would go find a spouse, and part of their mission, obviously, would be building a household with that woman with kids and job and house and all that comes with it. So the problem is not singleness per se. I think sometimes single men read this book and are kind of like, oh, you know, what, what, is, is he saying this about me? Well, he's saying this about single men who don't have a mission in life, a well-defined, yeah. well-crafted yeah. mission. Um, so I, I, I don't. So again, it would be easy to read this book and come away thinking, well, men are just more fallen than women. Men are more sinful than women are. That that's not true. And insofar as he suggests that, I think that that is a problem and it needs to be corrected. But what he's getting at in terms of the sexual dynamics between men and women, and what men and women have at stake in any given sexual encounter, and how men and women actually relate to one another. Um, I, I think he's exactly right. The other thing, one other thing I would say here, just, and this is, we're still, I guess, sort of doing this by way of introduction. When Gilder, when, when I wrote this book, when I read this book in the, like in the early 90s, it really looked like, for all practical purposes, that at least the more radical version of feminism had been defeated. Yeah. So, for example, the ERA, the Equal Rights Amendment, had, had, had been shot down. It had been defeated. And so it looked like there was a kind of conservatism in American culture that was going to triumph. Well, the reality is everything that the ERA, ERA was about and everything that we were warned about by people like Phyllis Shafley and so forth with regard to ERA has come to pass just in a much more piecemeal kind of way. It didn't happen all at once the way it would have perhaps with the Equal Rights Amendment, but it still has come down the pike in various ways in more piecemeal form. But it's important to understand that when Gilder, at least when this book was um, reprinted. I want to say, like maybe in the, I think about '86 or so is when 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 this initially came out. Yeah, that's right. In this particular version, as Men in Marriage, and then it went through a series of reprints. '86. The um, it, it looked like to some degree feminism had had been defeated, and yet Gilder still needed to write this book because the reality is, even though there had been this political victory of conservatives over ERA. Still, you could see how the leaven of feminism and the leaven of the sexual revolution was working its way into the whole culture and impacting everybody, even people who considered themselves very staunchly conservative. So that people today who are on the conservative end of the spectrum, who would consider themselves traditionalist or you could say complementarian, are actually, they actually would have been considered progressives by the standards of, mm. you know, say, 50 or, or certainly 100 years ago. Yeah. So it's important to understand what's happening. We're, we're, we're oblivious to all the ways in which this confusion about gender and about the sexes has impacted us, even in circles where we might think we're kind of in this insulated bubble and protected from it. Right. So. Well, and he's not, he's not, I, th I think what you recognize as you read the book is he's not preaching to the choir. You know, he's, he's engaging in a dialogue at a very academic uh, level, you know, and he's, he's making the case at an academic level for the destructive power of feminism on a society. So he's, so I think that's something for, for you, before you read it, you know, if, if you're, if you've read a few quotes that you've taken out of context that sound feminist, just understand this book 
is written as a massively potent apologetic for a a let's let's call it a patriarchal society you know he, yeah. he is yeah. he is fighting he's in the trenches uh fighting against feminism and 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 that's that's the objective of the book he's doing it he's doing it i think in a way uh that is winsome to those who are engaging at the in the discussion at that level so he's not trying to he's not trying to win over um you know it, it's not pop psychology or 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 you know self-help or or anything like that you know it's not an encouragement for men to be more masculine and women to be more feminine it's it's really a let's look at this from a systemic level let's look at how societies work at a basic just very very basic level when you have these these roles between men and women flipped upside down what does that do and so he's describing it and and he's even you know he's looking at there's all this anthropological evidence looking at these different tribes and these different remote places that have perhaps a slightly more matriarchal structure or you know just just basically demonstrates these these things are in operation in every society in one way or another and here's what happens when when they go awry um so i'm gonna rich i'm gonna read the, the, i'm gonna read my notes uh, after reading uh, chapter one and 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 i i won't read uh any specific quotes although i've highlighted and underlined almost every other sentence in this in this chapter but this the, t- tell me what you think about this summary of chapter one Okay, women's sexual identity is secure and stable. So women, women have, and that's that's where I think the sexual superiority piece comes from. Their bodies uh, remind them monthly of of their femininity. You know, they're they in their physical bodies. They have uh, they have the equipment to you know be women and and do what women do. Can I jump in right here? I mean, I totally agree with that. Obviously, that's an obvious biological reality. But let me give a little bit of a counterpoint in our modern world, something I think is going on. Okay, you talked about a woman having a monthly reminder of her sexual reality of, well, if she's on the pill, that's not true. It's true. Uh, And I think I think one thing that we have to recognize. So um, do women have a more stable sexual identity than men do in 2023? Look, you have lots of women who are on birth control who are not married. And even if they are, I mean, I I would I still would question, you know, whether or not the pill is wise to use because of its health ramifications and whatnot. But if you're on the pill because you want to live a sexually liberated life as a single woman, you want to be able to, quote unquote, have sex like a man and that which means sex without consequence. You don't want your eggs to be expensive. Okay, yeah. you know, uh, you, you basically are trying to change the um, the cost uh, that's involved in a sexual transaction. Um, that, that's hugely problematic. Um, the pill has made it possible for women to deceive themselves about the rea- these sexual realities. Yeah. Um, so, so that 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 I think is important. To, that that's one dynamic that plays into this. No, you're yeah. right. You're right. We, and, we and live I think- in an age. Uh, well, let me say one other thing about yeah, this. Think about something like OnlyFans, okay? Which apparently this is where you know women can turn themselves into porn stars and and then offer that you know offer themselves uh, over the internet for money. Um, that I think has exploded the lie that all of the women involved in pornography were victims. I'm not saying the women on OnlyFans aren't victims too, in some kind of way, victims right. of males against them, whether it's fatherlessness or you know boyfriend who abused them or sexually exploited them or something like that. But but I think it shows that women today can be just as confused about their sexual nature 
as men have been. And the purpose of sex, the purpose of your sexuality, if you're a woman, is not to flaunt it on camera for a paycheck. Right. Okay. Just like the purpose of a man's sexuality is not just right. pleasure where, you know, where he goes about trying to have as many sexual conquests as he can. The right. purpose of sex is to unite one man to one woman so that together they'll be bonded. Sex will glue them together and will produce new life. It'll be generative. It'll be fruitful to use the language of Genesis yep. one. And so he's going to be oriented towards taking dominion to make himself worthy of reproducing with her. And, and she is going to, uh, obviously she's more given to multiplication. She He's the one who's going to carry the child and, and nurse and nurture the child in its early days. And, and that's the kind of division of labor that God has built into the human race. Okay. Right. I think Gilder in, when he wrote this book, and I mean, since I was growing up in this, you know, in the eighties and nineties, when this was being printed and then reprinted, um, I can say it made sense to talk the way he talks then. Yeah. I'm not so sure that it really makes sense in 2023. Yeah, because I think it's a good point, Rich. I, I think that I think he's not describing, at least in this first chapter, he's not describing the world to come, you know, the world that we're in today. He's describing humanity from the beginning to up until, let's say, a sexually liberated society. So he's just saying... Here's how. Here's just how it's designed. Here are the design features that are baked into humanity. Let me describe them for you, and 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 so so you do have to sort of go. Okay, let me suspend disbelief for a second, and not and 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 just think to a time before women were being uh, indoctrinated since kindergarten by public schools to to doubt their sexuality. So, so there's been, you're, you're absolutely right that we live in a, a bizarre upside down world right now, but I think he's laying the foundation to try to explain how we got there by starting yeah, yeah. with, here's the design, you know, so, so, so that first point about women's sexual identity being secure and stable. Well, let, right. let me, let me interrupt you one more time. And I yeah. want to read to you something. I, I mean, I am not a fan of Dennis Prager for all kinds of reasons. He is not yeah. a Christian. He's got a lot of very yeah. confused views. He's, he's kind of the epitome of what's wrong with secular conservatism, but he wrote an article not too long ago with this title. Women are disproportionately hurting our country. Let me read to you the first couple of paragraphs because he interacts with Gilder here. And I think he gets at exactly what you and I are talking about here. Yeah. And it's interesting because he read Gilder when he was, now he's older than I am, but he read Gilder when he was in college. I read Gilder when I was in college. Interesting. He says, when I was in college, I read a book by George Gilder, one of the wisest thinkers of the last half century titled Naked Nomads. Okay, so Naked Nomads is about single men and a lot of that content sort of resurfaces in this book. So he says, I read this book called, called Naked Nomads, which had a deep impact on me. It was about single men and all the pathologies associated with them. For example, Gilder drove home the point that the biggest factor concerning violent crime was that it was overwhelmingly committed by single men. So right. we think of violent crime being committed by men, but more specifically, it's single men, unattached right. men who don't have wives at home and 100%. children. Yep. He says, while there was no danger, I would say no chance that I would commit a violent crime, though I was at the time single, this fact, along with others in the book, made me a lifelong advocate of marriage. I also came to realize that raising good men was the most important thing society could do. Mm -hmm. If it doesn't, the male propensity to physical aggression and predatory sexual behavior will wreak havoc. Therefore, raising boys to control their natures is fundamental to society avoiding chaos. 
Mm-hmm. Now, here's the clenching part. Over the course of my lifetime, however, I have come to realize that while society was right about males, it was wrong about females. Mm-hmm. Whether spoken or unspoken, most people thought that girls just didn't need to be raised to control their natures mm-hmm. nearly as much as boys did, but they do. It is true that females are not inclined to violence or predatory sexual behavior as men are, but this hardly means that girls and women don't have to learn to control their natures. On the contrary, as I have been telling parents for many years now, they need to teach their daughters to control their natures just as much as they teach their sons to do so. Specifically, girls have to learn to control their emotions. And then from there, Prager goes on to talk about basically what has happened He says, just as the male sex drive and violent impulses can overwhelm their conscience and their ability Mm. to act rationally, emotions can do the same thing in girls and women, overwhelm their conscience and their ability to think and act rationally. And then he goes on from there to talk about how many of our current social pathologies, like transgenderism, for example, um, are driven mainly by women. Mm-hmm. Uh, that a lot of these things are prime or the, you know, um, one that Ren points out is how 80% of divorces are initiated by women. Some of those justified, but many of them not. And they happen because women have not learned to control their emotional natures. They have an emotional reaction to something. Yep. Women will head to divorce court uh, because they know that they're, they're, they're incentivized to do so by our culture because they know they'll get a nice settlement, alimony, child support, child custody, all of that. Uh, And so they're incentivized. But the reality is it goes back to women learning how to control their emotional impulsiveness. Just like men have to control their sexual impulsiveness, women have to learn to control their emotional impulsiveness. We sin in complementary ways as men and women. That's not the way we're used to thinking about complementarianism, but we really do sin in complementary ways. And it's important to understand both. Gilder is going to primarily focus on the male pathologies because that's what was most evident when he was writing. I think we can say now, several decades later, the the, the corresponding female pathologies have become very evident, and we have to deal with those as well. I'm not saying that anything Gilder says is wrong. I, I agree with you that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, my my any corrective I might offer would be very mild. But I can understand why people today would have a reaction. I'll just say this. The language of the woman being sexually superior did not land on people the same way in 1993 that it does in 2023. Uh, It just hits you differently because we've just seen a we've got a whole new slate of social problems we're trying to deal with now. Well, and and again, and and I'll read some more of my notes here, but, but, but what he's not saying... Well, first of all, I think what he's saying, without a doubt, is that if men if if men are off course, then the whole society is is going to be uh, like the fact that that societies have to deal with young men is is a is another way of saying uh, men lead society. You know, men men ultimately the the course of your society is going to be shaped by by the men, right? And so, um, but when he talks about the sexual superiority again, I think he's talking about about the stability uh, again pre pre all this non transgender craziness that we we are experiencing in the last couple of years um uh the the fact that you're a woman um you know and, and the way that you express your sexuality or the way that you express your uh, the way that you affirm your your sex you know you're a female it's it's not just through the act of sex but it's also through nursing a child, giving birth to a child, um, nurturing those children, you know, into, you know, raising them into, uh, 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 as they, as they grow up. And so, um, and so whereas a, a, a man, um, <clears throat> really has, has one sort of 
clear and obvious way in which he is a man, you know, um, that there's one sort of physical sexual thing that happens. And even that thing, he is not in complete control of, you know, it's, it's kind of a, it's kind of a mysterious thing. Um, so yeah, that's my next point is, is that men, men's sexuality is tenuous, unstable, and often dysfunctional. Uh, women, and, and I describe it here, women are sexually fulfilled through intercourse, nursing, childbearing, uh, menstruation is a constant reminder of, of their sexuality. Men are sexually fulfilled via sex, and that is, that is dubious. Any other man might be better sexually, right? Um, and, and since uh, men assert masculinity via male strength, dominance, dominance competition, uh, it's often, it can often be destructive. Uh, and so what happens is women demand single men prove competence as a provider and protector in order to get a wife. Uh, so, so society, and this is the, this is the idea that a man has to submit to because women control access to sex, you know, cause women have, don't, aren't, aren't, don't have the testosterone levels that men do. So men's testosterone is this overwhelming power, uh, uh for sex drive, uh, sex drive and women don't have that. They've got more control over their sex drive. Um, right. And so they sort of. They are sort of the gatekeepers of sex for men, and so, um, so this whole idea of men having to, men's kind of sexuality having to be sort of um, um, uh, submitted to, or I'm, I'm not using the right right word, but 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 com, uh, conform to women's sexual horizons is basically a man a man is built for these intense bursts of strength and sexual energy. You know, that's kind of the male. Doug says like men are like microwaves, you know, sexually women are like ovens, you know, it's sort of a men. It's a, it's a short term performative thing, whether it's playing a rugby game where you go out there and just, and just go nuts with, with masculine energy smashing into people. That's a way to assert your masculinity. Sex is the same kind of thing for a man. Uh, but, but if a society is not going to go off the rails, a man is going to have to have to, perform for a woman and either you have two options either the men become become roving bands who just who just uh you know rape and pillage and that's how they get access to sex or you get uh women who demand some sort of uh performance of uh that's that's healthy you know that's that's productive in order to get um to get sex and so your sex drive for men reinforces that good social pe- pressure towards marriage and manhood. Um, so I'll stop there. Um, but yeah, that, it's that, kind that, of my, yeah. Yeah, that, that's really, really good. Um, here's a way to think about it, okay? What he's getting at in the first chapter. Um, women can carry new life in their own bodies. I mean, right. isn't that an amazing thing that a woman can house another human being in her body and take right. care of that life and, and you know, not just sustain it, but, but nourish it and grow it to viability. Then it's born. And then she takes care of that baby, that newborn with her body, with her body. Yeah. That's, that's what she does. Okay. So, so that's what she brings to the table in a sense. Okay. What could a man possibly bring to the table? that would be equal to that. Right. <laughs> what right. would they possibly bring to the table that would somehow balance that? Well, what he brings to the table is protection and provision. And that's right. why I say, you know, the, the, the creation mandate belongs to the whole human race, no question. 
Men are obviously involved in multiplication. Women are obviously involved in dominion. But there is a kind of emphasis, a kind of, um, again, what I would call a sexual division of labor. Women are, are more valuable on the multiplication side because they can do things there that obviously no man can come close to equaling. Men are more given to the dominion side of the mandate because yep. so, so that's how they become the protectors and providers. And yep. so it's under. So so when you upset that very delicate balance that God has designed us to, to, to live with that very delicate, you could even say division of labor between men and women. You know, when women become their own providers, they very quickly um, start to think, well, I don't need a man. That, that was really the whole thing. Why would feminists say I don't need a man? Well, the reason they would think I don't need a man is because they thought, well, in the modern world, I can be my own protector and provider. Right. Okay. And and men actually can do the same thing because men can say, hey, you know what? With Internet pornography, I don't need a woman. Yeah. Okay. And of course, in in this, we we are we are uh, undermining God's beautiful design. You know, God's design, there's a kind of resilience to it, but it's also, it's also fragile in certain ways. And we, we have, we're having, um, we, we, in our culture, we have wrecked this design about as much as you can wreck it. Uh, and that's why you see so much out of wedlock pregnancy. It's why you see so much marital breakdown. It's why you see that men and women have a hard time. Young people, they have a hard time finding a partner. In some ways, they just have a hard time finding somebody they're attracted to because the yep. polarity between the sexes has been so yep. diminished. Yep. So Here- Here's a good, here's a really good, uh, I'm going to read just a couple of chunks because I think this is, this describes what you're saying and, and, and the sperm is cheap, uh, eggs are expensive. This, this is a great illustration of that. And I'll just read a couple, a couple little quotes here. A, a man without a woman has a deep inner sense of dispensability, right? And I'll skip down in this. Uh, it, it is this sense of dis- dispensability that makes young men good fighters, good crusaders, good martyrs, right? There's the sperm is cheap kind of concept. Right. right. And I'll skip down because the woman has always been directly responsible for infants and almost always exclusively responsible. She is dubious about the dying and killing that surrounds male activity. Once the man marries, he can change. He has to change for his wife will not, will not long have him. If he remains in, in the spirit of a single man, he must settle his life and commit it to the needs of raising a family. He must exchange the moral and spiritual rhythms of the hunt for a higher more extended mode of sexual life. He must submit ethically and sexually to the values of maternal morality and futurity. And I'll skip skip down just one more one more chunk here. His life is no longer so optional because his wife and children depend on him. Thus, individual life assumes a higher value within the monogamous marriage than it does in the male group. Um, so, so it's this beautiful thing that that. Um, that men, like he, t- he describes kind of the male, you know, in, in a, again, kind of a primitive society, let's say the most, the most powerful bond is between a mother and her children. And probably the second most powerful bond is between a man and his, and, and his bros, you know, his, his hunting party, his, his, uh, um, it's anyway, the, David and Jonathan kind of dynamic, right? Right. So like, those are the two most powerful, natural uh, affiliations uh kind of anthropologically but marriage creates this even more profound um union um that uh that transcends both of those and it, and it, and and a man changes from his priorities being to the bros to his priorities being about his wife and his offspring um which is a beautiful thing yeah you know that that's really really good um 
and I had something I was going to add to that, uh, but your thoughts there are really, really good. Um, one one interesting thing, and, and again, I, you know, I don't want to be overly critical of the book, but there are several things that kind of going back through it this time, I noticed if, on page seven of my version. Okay. Um, I don't, do you have the new Canon Press version? Yeah, I do. I've got, they gave me a reader copy. I was out there last week and they let me, uh, let me get a, but yeah, what, I'll see if it's close. Well, okay. Well, it's in, it's in the first chapter. So mm-hmm. it's in a paragraph that starts whether instinctive or not. However, yep. the maternal role originates in the fact that only the woman is necessarily present at birth. Right. I don't know how, tr- I mean, obviously only the woman. Yes, you can have, you have to have somebody generally helping the woman to give birth. But, sure, <laughs> sure, sure. Man. but a little further down in that paragraph, he says, there is no way men can share in the mothering hormone that many authorities believe the woman secretes in childbirth. Okay, this is what is interesting. Now we, you know, obviously decades later, we do have more knowledge of the science of what happens at childbirth. And yes, there are mothering hormones like oxytocin and so forth that are released when a mother gives birth. I mean, I've, I've, I've heard of mothers of, of, of pregnant women who are about to have their first child who are concerned, will I be able to bond with my child when, when he's born? Mm-hmm. And I <laughs> just want to say, you know, nature, okay, ultimately God has taken care of that because the moment that child is born, your body is going to be flooded with hormones that help you bond with that baby. So right. don't, don't worry right. about bonding with your baby. God's going to take care of that. But this is what's interesting. We now have the science to know that when, that, that a father, when his wife gives birth, he undergoes a hormonal transformation as mm-hmm. well. His mm-hmm. testosterone slightly decreases, other chemicals kick in that allow him to bond in new ways with his wife and especially with his newborn child. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, Gilder was right. And according to the science of the time, I mean, at this point, they're just even making guesses about a woman's uh, you know, hormones being released to help her bond with a child at birth. But now we know for a fact that when a, when a, when a father, when the man is involved, he undergoes a hormonal change at that point as well to help him. In fact, another book we, we might want to eventually discuss is Nancy Percy's book, The yeah. Toxic War on Masculinity, because it's similar to this. I mean, it, it's, it's a real mix of, you know, some really great stuff and some really questionable stuff. But, uh, but she does talk about this. She does a lot also with sociology and with science. And this is one of the things she looks at is the hormonal transformation that takes place for the for the mother and for the father at birth. She says, you know, we used to think that um, for the mother, the bonding with the child was biological and with the father, it's got to be cultural. So fatherhood is not natural in the way that motherhood is. Fatherhood is sort of a cultural construct. And even some things in Gilder kind of tend that way because it would be easy to think that. No, in reality, the, the, the father-child bond is also biological. It's just as natural. It's not just a matter of social construct that's somehow imposed upon men. That, too, is designed by God. Men are designed to bond with their children. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's not just something being imposed upon them you know, by society or some you know, external law or something like that. They're, they're compelled to it. Here's another thing that goes back to what you were, you were talking about. Um, and I know we're getting to where we need to wrap this up. But this, this, I'll make this one point, and then you can, if you want to. Um, yeah wrap things up for us. You can, you, you probably have some more quotes you want to, you want to read. Oh man. Um, I can do it all day. When it comes to provision, you know, men are constantly trying to justify their existence. I mean, that may not be the right way to put it, but, uh, because obviously our existence is justified by the fact that a good and loving God created us, but men are trying right. to justify themselves as men and what their role is. And, right. and men can do that in healthy or unhealthy ways. But again, the way the man has conventionally done that is he has become the protector and provider. That's what he brings to the table, so to speak. 
When women, so, so, and I would say men get a great deal of satisfaction out of providing for their families. Okay. When, um, you know, I've known men who were just so overjoyed at the thought that they were going to buy their wife a new car, you know, yeah. so excited to provide for her in that way. Yes. Or so, uh, you know, they get so much satisfaction out of being known by their children as the provider. You know, what they, the kids may not understand what dad does when he goes off to work, but they know whatever he, whatever he's doing, that makes the money that makes the rest of their lives possible. You know, I mean, that's what I would you know, tell my kids sometimes, you know, the patriarchy has provided every good thing you've ever enjoyed pretty much uh, because that that's what men do. Men are providers and men get a great deal of satisfaction out of providing. Yep. When women have to provide, they don't get any satisfaction out of it at all. And in fact, if they have to provide for a man, they grow to resent it very, very quickly. Mm-hmm. In marriages where the woman earns more than the man, again, studies have been done about this. The man and the woman and, and this is interesting that this, you know you could see how a man would be embarrassed by that. A man would be embarrassed to be out earned by his wife, but the women are embarrassed by it as well. Mm-hmm. They are embarrassed by the fact that they out earn their men because they know yeah. there's something unnatural about it. And again, I think this is one of the things that drives relationship tension, conflict, in many cases, divorce is the fact that a woman who earns more than her husband or who does not see her husband as a provider will very quickly grow restless and discontent in that relationship and think, why do I need you? There's just, there's this, there's this intuitive disgust that women have towards men who cannot and will not provide role reversal. You know, feminists have said, well, because these roles are social constructs, role reversal should not matter. The wife can go off and be the CEO and the man can stay home with the children or, or, you know, be the, you know, take care of things in in the home. No, it it, that kind of role reversal is unnatural. It goes against the grain. And anytime you run your hand against the grain of a piece of wood, you're going to get splinters. And that's what happens. Okay, I don't doubt you could find a couple here or there that could, you know, somehow make it work because. You know, that just the world we live in is complicated and there's all kinds of factors at play. Yep. But in general, when a man is not a provider, when he is not the quote unquote breadwinner, that creates all kinds of relational dysfunction right. in the marriage and ultimately in the household. Well, and, and, and this is this is where the whole book is aiming, I think, is is that in a world where um, sex is free, you know, where, where liberated women, um, don't, don't guard access to sex like they used to. And, and where men have access to pornography and, and only fans and those kinds of things, there's no longer this, this drive, um, to make a commitment to a woman and to perform, um, and to perform a, a, uh, constructive, um, service, you know, to her and to society through protection and provision. Um, and I think, uh, we're, we've kind of talked through chapter one and really kind of part one of the book. And I, and I'd love to, to start to go into part two, maybe in our next, our next, uh, we can do another episode on this if we'd like, but he goes into, he, you know, he called the chapter five is called the princess's problem. And he does this really wonderful job of painting a picture of, I mean, it's it's eerie. It's eerie because I'm thinking as I'm reading this of so many women that I know who this story exactly mirrors. You know, this woman who who is at the peak of the sexual. You and I have talked about this before. You know, 20s to 30s, you're, you're, you know, women are sort of at the peak of the sexual hierarchy, so to speak. And and as they're making more money and having more success in their careers, 
the uh, the the men that that she uh, respects because of the, the the term hypergamy, which she doesn't use in this book, but that's a term that that uh, that you and I have talked about before. Um, you know, she's looking for men above her, which end up being, you know, the data is clear: men who are married end up um, making far more money and being far more successful. And so now this woman who's at the peak of the sexual hierarchy is now looking to men who she can respect and they're all married men. And so she becomes a homewrecker essentially, you know, and he, he, he divorces. And then once he's divorced once, he's probably more likely to divorce again. And she's about to hurt her reign on the throne, uh, is about to end. Um, and, uh, and so it's, it, it, I mean, it just perfectly describes this, this pattern we see, uh, over and over and over in the world that we live in today. Yeah, that's really good. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll end with this rich and then we can, we can, uh, we can talk about this all later, but I think this is a good kind of summary. Um, so I'll just read this chat. This is, this is page 10 on my copy. It may be, it may be, uh, 11 or so on yours, but throughout the literature of feminism, there runs a puzzled complaint. Why can't men be men and just relax? The reason is that unlike femininity, Relaxed masculinity, masculinity is at bottom empty and limp nullility, nullility, nullility. Yeah, I don't know how to pronounce it. While the female body is full of internal potentiality, the male is internally barren from the old French bar meaning man. Manhood at the most basic level can be validated and expressed only in action. A male's body is full only of undefined energies, and all these energies need the guidance of culture. He is therefore deeply dependent on the structure of the society to define his role in all its specific expressions. Manhood is made, not born. And I'll skip down a chapter. Um, the male sexual predicament, like the female, is not the sort of arrangement that might have been invented by social engineers. It has a tragic quality that is difficult to adapt to egalitarian formulas. Men must perform. There is no shortcut to human fulfillment for men, just just the short circuit of impotence. Men can be creatively human only when they are confidently male and overcome their sexual insecurity by action. Nothing comes to them by waiting or being. This inferior sexuality, this relatively greater sexual insecurity is the, is the reason intercourse plays a role in the lives of male that is different from the role in the lives of females. So I'll stop there, but, but, but I, I feel like that helps kind of describe helps kind of set up the understanding of, of what he's talking about by inferior sexuality. A man, a man isn't, isn't going to fulfill some, some great purpose by just sitting there and waiting where, where a female, a woman can like, she has all this potentiality in her body and some man's going to come along and marry her. And she's going to bring life into the world and be a mother and fulfill this, this deep, you know, uh, purpose that, that, that God has designed for a man doesn't have that option. Like a man is, is just full of potential energy, but if he just sits there and doesn't direct it towards something, it's going to be, um, his, his life is going to be, you know, useless and undirected and, and probably destructive. So, so anyway, I think that all helps kind of summarize what it is Gilder's really getting at, uh, when he's, when he uses these terms about inferiority and superiority it's not, uh, I think you have to do the, the homework to really follow his argument. And I think once you do, you see that it's not some nefarious, you know, feminist, um, 
agenda or even evolutionary agenda. He's just trying to describe, um, you know, how, how it is that, that, um, how it is that sex kind of, uh, sexuality sort of, uh, functions. Yeah, that's really good. Larson, even if you wanted to question, you know, what he says about how the female body is full of life and potentiality, the male body is internally barren. Even if you wanted to say, Hey, no, that's not really true. Women are barren unless they mate with men. Yeah. They're, they're, you know, I mean, we need one another to have, you know, in order for our sexual um, design to be fulfilled and to create new life. Even if you wanted to say that, I think he still is making a really crucial point. Set aside the reproductive aspect of it, because you could you could certainly criticize it there. Think about it in terms of attraction. Women, by nature, generally have everything or pretty easily have everything they would need to attract a man. I mean, you talked about, you know, women in their peak attractive years um, that, you know, they're kind of at the apex of of things sexually. Um, So, so a woman has by nature what she needs to attract a man. A man does not have anything by nature that he needs to attract a woman. Right. As Gilder says, he actually has to make something of himself. He has to perform. He has to show that he would be a competent provider and protector. And this is why I tell young men, and we've talked about this on our podcast before, but it's been a while. For young men, it's mission before marriage. Go figure out what you're going to do. Make something of your life. Start to build a great life that a woman would want to be a part of. And then invite that woman into what you're doing. That's really the way it works. And that's how you make yourself attractive to a woman. Yeah. That's right. Uh, so, That's right. So, so, there, so, you know, people today are so obsessed with equality, okay? And we can affirm that men and women are equal when it comes to bearing God's image. Men and women are equal uh, when it comes to our fallenness. Men and women are equal in redemption when it comes to having our sins forgiven and having a glorious inheritance. We're equal in all those ways, okay? In every other way, we're not equal. And to talk about equality is just a distraction, uh, it just so so think about this. Equality is what leads feminists to say, hey, you know what? If men can go topless out in public, women should be able to as well. Right. We're we'll saying, no, wait a second. <laughs> we don't have that kind of equality. We don't. Right. And I'm not talking here about inferiority or superiority. That makes no sense. But I, what I would say is instead of focusing on equality, focus on reality. Because it's reality that really matters. And the reality is men and women are different. We have different bodies. And so, of course, there are certain parts of a man's body that can be unclothed where we would not say that for a woman. We're, we're just different. Okay. Yeah. So, so we, so instead of equal, so I would say in marriage, equality is a largely worthless concept, except for maybe at this you know very theoretical level. What matters is reality, what God has created the man to do and what God has created the woman to do. What are those creational realities, those you know, built in, designed realities about who we are as men and women? Let me give you that that Kuiper quote that I was talking about. Yeah. Where he talks about the essence of modernity, because this, this is really the sexual project that modernity has been involved in. I think Kuiper said this in 1898 in his Stone mm-hmm. Lectures at Princeton. He said, finally, modernism, so that we might say progressivism or liberalism, something like that. Finally, modernism, which denies and abolishes every difference, cannot rest until it has made woman man and man woman. And putting every distinction on a common level kills life by placing it under the ban of uniformity. 
Okay. Mm-hmm. We might say the ban of equality. Okay. We might use different words. But when he talks about making man into woman and woman into man, he wasn't thinking of our modern day transgenderism. I mean, that would be the most extreme right. form of this, but the thought that sure. you could surgically and chemically seek to alter someone's sex, he wouldn't be, but he's just saying, this is what we're doing to people in general. We're androgenizing the human race and it's killing life and it's killing life metaphorically. And then it kills the joy because there's so much joy to be found in those created differences between men and women, but it also kills life in the sense that when man becomes woman and woman, man, masculinized women and feminized men, they, they don't really reproduce. Yeah, uh, it's right. kind of a dead end sexually as right. well. So, uh, right. so I, I think that's a great uh, summary of some of these things. Absolutely. Well, um, really, really fun stuff. I'm, I'm, I'm thankful that that uh, that Canon is republishing this book. Um, I'm, I'm also kind of thankful that there's been such a um, overreaction or misunderstanding, you know, because it's 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 uh, it's it's actually in my case what's driven me to to go. Well, I better go read that. Um, and uh, and I and I don't you know I don't know that uh, this is a book that everybody's got to read necessarily. But if you're if you're interested in in these things, interested in these dynamics, and, and want to understand how we got to where we are, um, it's it's ultimately about forgetting that God created us man, male and female, and that that those those things are good. Um, that 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 design was good, um, and. Um, and when we abandon it, when we when we abandon you know our, our role as as image bearers of God uh, in our masculinity, in our femininity, we we abandon uh, His design for for blessing. Um, and so, um, so I think Gilder adds a lot of really good kind of uh, scaffolding or or kind of buttresses that that under, our understanding of how that works in the world and. Um, and is worth reading for that for that purpose. So yeah, it, it is. I think it's worth reading uh, for people who want to really think through these issues. And I look forward to talking about it with you more, Larson. Yeah. All right, Rich. Well, we'll see you uh, next time. You've got a minute. The Got a Minute podcast is a ministry of Trinity Reformed Church in Huntsville, Alabama. If you like this podcast, you might enjoy one of our other podcasts, The Good Life Podcast featuring Matt Carpenter interviewing experts in their field about how their work contributes to the good life.